Good morning, church, at the uh, 1555 parking lot area and the courtyard. Welcome to the worship service and welcome to uh, sing praises together to our great king. And those who are watching live streaming from your respective home, welcome to the uh, worship service. And later on, as you watch the recording, we also welcome you. You are part of FCBC Walnut worshiping together. Um, I just want to uh, uh, acknowledge that today is a hot day, so you're welcome to open up the doors of your cars if you want to be inside your car. Uh, and uh, if you feel too hot, you are welcome to step outside the car, find a shade under the tree or somewhere to make yourself uh, shelter from the heat. And you may also want to consider to go to the courtyard where it is uh, much cooler uh, and be able to worship together with us. Uh, today, I just want to reiterate the importance of putting on your mask uh, when you go about, whether before service, in the middle of the service, and after the service, you do have to put on your mask. I think, uh, and also keep uh, physical distancing as much as you can. I know it's a challenge for us. We are drawn to each other. We love to get close and share and talk about God's goodness in our lives. But we do need to be a little bit more cautious. We don't want to have any outbreaks here that will shut us down for two weeks or something like that. We want to carry on what we are enjoying worshiping together in person uh, over here and those uh, from live streaming and those who are, are seeing the recording. Uh, so let's do that and, and do it together for the glory of God. Okay. And today I want to continue with the preaching on the first Corinthian uh, chapter one after Pastor Hanley has expounded on the first nine verses through uh, two messages. Uh, today's message is so relevant to where we are today. Today, we are talking about the gospel uniting the church. We're talking about unity. And, and church unity is a major problem in the church of Corinth. In fact, Paul spent four chapters in 1 Corinthians just to address that one issue before he uh, de deviates into other issues. Uh, that's how important it is. Uh, Jesus pays attention to the unity of his disciples when he prayed for them in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, the so-called high priest prayer. And he not only prayed for the disciples during his time, but he also prayed for those who will uh, know me through the words of these people. Through the preaching of the apostles, uh, they also become disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus also prayed for them, and that includes you and me today. And that's how important unity is. But we know unity is a very challenging issue. It's ever on our forefront that we will continue to deal with that. But we will address it today in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 17. And as you are aware, in the past six to eight months, we have been tested. We've been tested in so many ways on the unity of the church, unity of the family, unity of the marriage, and the unity of our nation. You know, to reopen the church or not to reopen the church. People have strong feelings about that. To move indoor or to stay outdoor, people have very strong feelings about that and oftentimes pack it together with whether you have faith in God or not. Um, whether the mask, the hand washing, and the physical distancing is sufficient to bring people back together safely. People, again, have anxiety about that. And, and should the pastor tell the church which party or which presidential uh, uh, candidate should we vote 
that, you know, people have very strong feelings. Some people feel that you should. Others say, no, you should not. And you should not use the pulpit to pro promote a certain individual. We only promote the gospel in Jesus Christ. So people are tested. We are tested as a church, as a family, um, and as, as a nation on how to keep our unity together. So in a sense, we are divided in so many ways in the past. But today, in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, verses 10 to 17, Paul calls a divided church, the church in Corinth, to unite under the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's how we should be united under the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bible, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 17. You know, somehow uh, in my hastiness to come up here, I brought my NIV version. I hope you don't mind I read from the NIV version. I know that usually we use the ESV, and I use the ESV too. But in the Chinese Bible, it is a bilingual Bible with NIV and Chinese, so I somehow brought that on my stage here. Okay, anyway, let me read that to you, and you follow along in the ESV. Okay, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no division among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thoughts. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I'm thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone uh, else. For Christ did not send me to baptize you, but to preach the gospel not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. I have a special courier service where my ESV is delivered to me right away. Uh, thank you so much uh, for me to preach from my uh, version that I'm used to as I prepare this message uh, in the ESV version. Now today I want to share that passage with you in three uh, uh, outlines, uh, in, in three points in my outline. First of all, the appeal the appeal for unity. In verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you, all of you agree, and there be no division among you, and that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Paul was appealing to the highest authority, to Christ, the name of Jesus Christ, our highest authority. Basically, he's saying that whatever I say is from Christ, let's obey him, that you will agree. The, the, the word agree basically literally means say the same thing. Now, not exactly like parroting, you know, or duplicating the same words in our midst here, but basically saying that we agree, uh, we, we come and work together. That's the whole idea. He says, I, I pray that there will be no division among you. You know, the word division is a strong word. It means to tear it apart violently. It means to tear it apart by the strong force. And that's the force that divides the church in Corinth. It's very sad. Uh, it's very painful as well to Paul's heart, who is the founder of the church in Corinth. So he appealed to them that in the name of Jesus, that they will agree and not be divided. 
and, and that you'll be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. What is the same mind? The same mind is basically the principle, the core principle. Agree in the principle and in the same judgment. The judgment is the application of the principle. So if you have principle and application, what is that? It's a decision-making process, right? You decide on the, what are the principles, what are the values, and then how to apply that in our church, okay, in this setting. So in the decision-making process, he called the people to be united. The word united is so important to restore back to how it should be. The same word is being used in the gospel to talk about mending the fishing net. When the disciples get together to mend the net that has been used for fishing, over and over again it has been torn. To mend, to unite, means to put them back together so that it is functional and it is able to catch the fish. So the whole idea is in our decision-making process, let's make it work effectively to show that we are one body of Christ for the glory of God to come together for His purpose. So he appealed to the church for unity. And secondly, in verses 11 and 12, he tells us what is the cause of disunity. What actually happened? Look at verse 11. He says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, which probably are the members of the church in Corinth who travel back and forth from the city of Corinth and Ephesus and gave report to Paul on what happened to the church, that there is quarreling among you. The word quarreling is in plural. That means they keep quarreling in many ways, in many forms, through many days. It's sad that you come back to a church. Instead of word of edification and encouragement, you hear quarreling, conflicts, rivalry, factions in the midst of that. He says, but you are brothers, my dear. You are brothers. We are one church. We should be working together. But what exactly were they quarreling about? Uh, verse 12 begins to remind us that what I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos, and I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. That is the problem. You know what is the problem? That each of you keep talking about me, 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 I, I, I. That's a problem. When individualism, when selfishness rear its ugly head, the church will be divided. When everybody only wants their voice to be heard, only wants their ways to be done, the church will be divided, the family will be divided, the marriage will be divided, the society will be divided. And that's the sadness of the church in Corinth. But exactly what happened? Many commentators and New Testament scholars can only guess what actually happened. You know, when, when Paul wrote that to the church in Corinth, they knew exactly what happened because they were going through that 2,000 years ago. And 2,000 years later today, as we look back, we can only reconstruct and try to find exactly what happened. And if you read different commentaries, different commentators will give you different scenarios and different narratives and to, ex to know exactly what happened. You know, for me, maybe I'll just summarize it in this way. Uh, maybe not the most accurate or closest, but I think it's pretty close. Apollos, 
Apollos is a great orator, great preacher who knows the Bible well. Uh, in Acts chapter 18, you can read about this very young and upcoming uh, a preacher of God's word. So maybe he draws from the church the younger generation, the dynamic ones, those who want change, those who want to see things done in a certain way that can really be able to break outside the mold, think outside the box kind of a people. He draws them. For Paul, Paul is global in his perspective. You know, he cares about the Jews, he cares about the Gentiles. He cares about how the gospel and the church planting is happening all over Europe. He says, I'll be a Roman among the Romans, I'll be the Gentiles among the Gentiles, I'll be the Jews among the Jews. It's okay because gospel is supreme. I don't mind to eat the kind of food you eat. I don't mind to say the things that you guys are used to. I don't want to pick up more languages just to reach you and just to share the gospel with you. He is global in perspective. He is willing to try new things and be more creative. And he draws some people and, and his fans, uh, fans club begins to multiply. And for Peter, which is Cephas here, Cephas is his Aramaic name. Uh, for Peter, uh, he is a more traditionalist, more conservative, more Jewish culture and ways of doing things leaning. And of course, as a traditionalist, he draws another group of people who belong and come to his to his fans club. But what about the group that says, I follow Christ? You know, this is a totally different category. It's not even human. He is divine. How, how do you pack them? How do you compare them together? No way. So who are this group of people? This group of people are most likely or probably other people who think I am superior. <laughs> because if I mention Christ, no one can compare with Christ. Not even Paul, not even Peter, not even Apollos, not even the three combined, right? Christ supremes, Christ above all. So this is the people who says, once I raise and elevate Christ, no comparison, no competition, I win, I win. I am the fan club of Christ. Maybe that's what actually happened, and it could happen in that way. It's a, it's a, sometimes we say, oh, it's God's will. You know? Now, who can argue with that? Uh, I've been led by God. I, I prayed about this. You know, sometimes you try to convince your spouse and convince your family or convince your group and say, let's do it this way. Oh, I'm led by the Lord. I prayed about that. It is God's will. Of course, that needs to be verified by other people. But that's how we do it sometimes. Maybe because Apollos and Pauls and Peters, they have converted this fans, these followers, and they have discipled them, and naturally they followed them. But remember, Paul and Peter and Apollos, they have no issue among themselves. These followers are merely using their reputation, using their fame among a certain group to elevate their importance. Because if your leader, your hero, is being elevated and the fans and the followers feel like, hey, I get elevated too. I'm as important as him. I get more recognition. You know, more people look at us. That's great. That's what happened probably. And we often use the big name leaders, the kind of a celebrity, to show up our position, to have a sense of importance, and to try to outdo each other and try to silence other people. That's what happened. You know, following gifted leaders is not bad at all. To be discipled by good Bible teachers is wonderful. The only problem is 
if you begin to compete with other leaders, if you begin to compare with other leaders, if you attempt to outperform, outdo each other as if you are higher in the rank. And the worst is if you begin to exclude others, leaders equally used by God as unimportant, as not as close to your kind of a leader, then it is wrong. Then we are causing disunity in the church. And I wonder whether some of you are doing that during this time uh, as we uh, face so much divisions in our nation. One commentator put it this way. He said, members of the Korean church appreciate their favorite leaders too much and not appreciate the other leaders enough. That's the problem. And that is actually, he said, a manifestation of self-exaltation. They boasted about their teachers of wisdom in order to boast about themselves. A very selfish intention. Is that happening to you? Is that happening to me? By God's mercy, you know, we want to shy away from that kind of a competition, but rather we want to submit ourselves under the gospel. And finally, in verses 13 to 17, he talks about the absurdity of disunity. Absurdity of disunity. Look at verse 13. He used the three questions to answer Chloe's household of, what can we do? The church is divided. What do we do now? They said they follow you. They follow Peter. They follow Christ. They follow, you know, Apollos. What do we do now? He said, well, let me ask you three questions. Is Christ divided? No. Was Paul crucified for you? No. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. The three questions expect the answer to be negative. And these three questions basically bring us back to the gospel. Because Christ is one and only. Because Christ crucified for us and he redeems us. And none of the key leaders did that. Because we are baptized into the name of Jesus and not into Paul and Peter and Apollos. And why are we highlighting the influence of the individual and cause unity among the church? Because we are baptized, all of us, every one of us. And this morning in the Mandarin congregation, a sister, she is baptized not into the name of FCBC Walnut. She joined the church, but she is baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it is absurd to think that with one Christ, one name that we baptize into, one Savior who crucified for all of you, that we will be divided. Absurd, unthinkable. That's the whole idea that Paul is trying to portray to the church and to us as well. Now, he begins to expand that a little bit more. See, he can't talk about Peter. Peter was not there. Peter needs to speak for himself to his fans. Uh, Apollos has to speak for himself to the fans and to exhort them how to move forward to a unified church. So Paul was addressing his own followers and his own fans. The fans without his permission, the fans without his blessing, began to form a group to become a faction, to be a rival with other groups. And he begins to uh, address them in verses 13, uh, in verses 14. And 15, he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you are baptized in my name. So he looked at his own fans club and said, hey, people, I didn't baptize for you. As far as I remember, I did it for uh, Crispus. 
this, this Crispus is probably the one in Acts chapter 18, the leader of a synagogue, the chairman of the synagogue. And Gaius is probably the one in Romans chapter 16 where Paul addresses and greets them. And uh, he has a house church in his household. Then he's a leader of the house church. He said, that's how I remember. I baptized them, yes, but I am so glad. I am so glad I did not baptize more. Because the more I baptize, the more they gather together into a fence club and begin to compete and outdo and outperform each other in a rivalry and divide the church of Jesus Christ where Christ is one and we are all baptized into his name and he crucified for us. It's absurd to do that. Don't do that. That's the idea Paul was trying to reach out to the church in Corinth. Then suddenly, memory comes back. He says in verse 16, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Okay, now I remember. Uh, but beyond that, I do not know whether I baptize anyone else because it is not important who I baptize. It is more important who I am baptized into. It is not important where and who perform and officiate that baptism service, it is more important that it is in the name of Jesus that I baptize into Jesus' death, burial, crucifixion, and resurrection. And it is through Christ that I'm able to be baptized and join the body of Christ. And all of us are going through the same process. Then why are we competing? Why are we not submitting to one another? You see, Paul doesn't enjoy being uh, highlighted as one of the factions. They never got his permission. And he was grateful that he didn't baptize more people so that they would not rally together uh, just to elevate him. In a sense, he is basically saying in verse 17, summarizing the importance of the gospel. He said, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That when we talk about, you know, uh, a baptism, the baptism should subsume under the gospel. Gospel is supreme. Gospel is more important. That I will not forsake the preaching of the gospel. And the gospel is Christ and Him crucified. It is the cross of Jesus that I will be highlighting. So in a sense, Paul is saying that don't make me the Messiah. Don't fall into Messiah complex. None of us are Messiah. Christ is the Messiah. And the gospel reminds us that Jesus' death and resurrection is the foundation of the fact that we are baptized into his name. And that's who you, you and I are today. And nothing, nothing should eclipse the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. I like the way the message uh, puts and ex uh, expand uh, verse 17. He says, God did not send me out to collect a, a following for myself. Christ did not send me out to collect a, a following, to collect a fence for myself. He called me to preach and collect a following for Jesus. That we point all the disciples to Jesus not to individual leaders. God can use individuals to disciple you and to help me to grow, but we all point them to Jesus. We all follow Jesus. So I'm so grateful that as we come to where we are today, this message 
comes to us in a very powerful way. That the unity of mind and judgment, decision-making process comes, not because a particular leader is able to create consensus or have the knowledge to do it or have the spiritual gift to do it, but rather the unity that Paul urged on the church in Corinth is born from a baptism that connects all participants to Christ's death and resurrection, the gospel. And that's what we need to come together as well, that the gospel will unite us. You know, why does the gospel unite us? Let me give you at least three reasons. There are other reasons, but three reasons. The gospel of Jesus Christ unites us because, number one, the gospel puts us all on level ground. We are all the same before gospel. At the baptism, we are all standing on level ground because we are all baptized into the name of Jesus. At the cross of Jesus, we are on level ground because Jesus took the penalty of sin from us and put him upon himself to substitute us on the cross to die uh, on our behalf. All of us uh, receive the grace from Jesus in that way. In the matter of sin, we are on level ground because we are all sinners saved by grace. And none of us can claim any minute iota merits in we receive the grace of God. It is by His mercy that we are His children. The gospel put us all on level ground. Okay. Secondly, the gospel gives us a new identity in Christ. It frees us from comparison and competition with any human figures because we are all children of God. You know, we have these identity markers that we look to things like race or age or economic circumstances or education or ge geographical region to create meaningful boundaries and to identify our tribes. But for Paul, the death and resurrection of Christ changed everything. To be baptized is to be joined with all the other baptized members to the recent life in Christ and to be numbered among God's children. We are God's children. That is our new identity in Christ. Not only we are on level ground, not only we have a new identity, but thirdly, brothers and sisters, the gospel changes in the way that he invites us into a new community. It's a church, the new community where we are body of Christ and Christ is the head. We all submit under the teaching of Christ, under the authority of God's word, which is authoritative and inerrant, and we follow his teaching. And, and we are the body of Christ, different members. We have different gifts and personality, but we are one body because we have only one head, and Christ is the head. And therefore, you and I are to surrender to Christ. You and I are to submit to one another because we need all the members of the body to create a, a meaningful life and to work a strong uh, church life together in Christ. Gospel, the gospel unites us. So today my message to you is church Unity is anchored in the gospel of Jesus Christ where her members are united in the same mind and the same judgment. It is the gospel. Now today, uh, it is so relevant to talk about unity. I want to apply that first of all to the church. 
Okay, we are a church with three congregations, so unity in diversity is very important to us. I want to address the English congregation. I want to remind you that you are the anchor. You are the biggest congregation. You unify the Cantonese and the Mandarin by being so faithful and effective in the children's ministry, in the youth ministry, that the immigrants like me, we are not good at. And you provide the service for them and unite the church together. And of course, it's more than the children and the youth ministries and other ministries as well. But you are the anchor. Anchor well. Anchor the three congregation well and grow together for the glory of God. Show that unity under the gospel so that we can all grow together. You know, as church pastors, serving in the church with three languages, unity is constantly in our mind. Uh, when we begin to have the, uh, the lockdown uh, for COVID-19, we talk about unity and, and communication. We must over-communicate. We are one church with three languages. When Hong Kong's unrest last year were becoming so, so prevalent globally, we have a Cantonese congregation with many people from Hong Kong. We say, watch out for unity. Everybody uh, speak with respect and address it in a biblical way so that we will not rub people in the wrong place. Unity is very important. Uh, during this presidential election, where China bashing is so prevalent in all the topics and discussions, we remind each other unity. We have uh, many immigrants and many believers who are from China. They, they sense it differently. They feel it differently, and we must be sensitive as we serve together. When we look at the new Mac, which is about to complete in a few months, and who gets to use which room, who gets to worship in there, we think about unity. How do we unify the church together? Which congregation will benefit best in that location? Unity is constantly in our mind for us to serve the three congregations. Again, the election. People have different agendas. People expect the pastors do different things. They want us to speak on behalf of a certain agenda, of a certain individual, of a certain party. We say no. We say no because of unity. We want the church to be unified because we have diversity in our congregation. We can't do that. We must be a unified church of Jesus Christ where Christ is the head. I'm so thankful that our church, our church with three congregations, our leadership are really unified, strong and unified. We are all different. We respect each other, but we work together under the vision that He has given us for the glory of God. Thank God for our deacons and officers and Sunday school teachers and, and, and those AV teams and everybody working together. You know, just during this time to reopen the church, AV is of supreme importance. Without AV, you can't open up. So we have English supporting the Cantonese and Mandarin. We have Cantonese supporting the Mandarin and the Mandarin coming to help each other. We have even people who worship in the English congregation with the bilingual ability go over to serve and support the Mandarin. You know, remember, we come together to make that, uh, I think Pastor Terrence called it, the Mosaic YouTube, where about 80, 80 singers sing together the, the song, The Blessing, in three languages. It was so so edifying. You know, I, I viewed that at least five times. I was so moved by that. That picture of different families, different individuals coming together to show that we are one church with three cultures, one church with three languages, but we are one church because Christ is the head of the church. Secondly, I want to apply that to the family because church life spews into the family and spews into the society. 
You know, the gospel redeems our family relationships by calling us to submit to one another and both submitting to God. We all play our roles together, but for the glory of God. That the husband will love the wife, the wife will submit to the husband. That the children will honor the parents and the parents will not provoke their children and not to discourage them, but together we submit to Christ. And during this COVID-19 uh, lockdown, uh, people work from home and they have much more time to rub shoulder and oftentimes create more conflicts. So domestic violence was on the rise during this uh, presidential election. There are more issues that divide us. You know, how do we respect each other, submit to one another, love each other, and to build together a strong family? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. From the gospel of Jesus Christ, I learned three things to build our family. One, I learned sacrificial love. You know, our human love is basically selfish. Even the love is really for my own good. Even the love is really for my own agenda. Even the love is my self-expression. I like it this way. But it is through the cross of Jesus that we begin to see what it means to, be, to love sacrificially. That even though it may not benefit you, but God calls me to love for your benefit, sacrificially. Only in Christ, in the cross of Jesus, that I learned how to do that. Secondly, in the, in the gospel, I learned forgiveness. Forgiving one another. As we build our family together, whether husband and wife, whether parents and children, there are so many things and so many ways and so many differences that divide us, that cause conflict in our relationships. What bring us together? Forgiveness. <laughs> what bring us on a, on, a, on a strong marriage and strong family? Forgiveness. Okay? Uh, those who are quick will be quick. Those who are slow will be slow. Those who are sloppy will be sloppy. You know, you will improve somewhat, but your nature will not change a lot. How do we last our marriage for 30 years, for 40 years, for 50 years, for 60 years? Forgiving one another over and over and over again. Where do I learn forgiveness? Why should I forgive you when I am right? I learn it through Christ. I learn it through the gospel of Jesus. We extend forgiveness to one another because and I stand before the cross, I stand as a forgiven sinner by the grace of God. And therefore, I need to forgive others, even though I don't feel like sometimes. But Christ inspires, uh, uh, mo motivates me to learn how to forgive others. Thirdly, under the cross of Jesus, I learned to be gracious. Gracious means even though you don't deserve it, even though you are wrong, but for the sake of the unity, for the sake of the family, for the sake of the marriage, I am willing to suck it up. I'm willing to take it in. I'm willing to bear with it by the grace of God. I'm willing to extend grace to you. Where did you get that? The cross of Jesus, the gospel. That's what built us together. And finally, the church life spills into the society. And today, I want to talk about the election and how that affects you and me. Our society is torn apart, polarized, emotionally charged, and people get more and more vicious and even in the attack mode. I'm not even talking about the society at large. I'm talking about churches. Churches accusing each other of not faithful. Uh, churches accusing each other of not being biblical. Churches accusing each other of being timid, of being chicken out, of not willing to take a stand. And, and we just, just point fingers and, and push each other away. And when we don't remember 
that it is Christ who sacrificed, who crucified for us. It is the name of Jesus that we are all baptized into. And our society is more so. Now, people ask me, Pastor Albert, how did you, how would you vote? Who would you vote? I said, I can't tell you who I vote. I don't want you to say uh, I'm a follower of Pastor Albert. I vote for this candidate, right? I will vote. I will vote. But you need to vote too. But how do I vote? Maybe I can share that with you. I vote for what is important. What is important? What is important to God's heart? What is important to me as my Christian value? See, God is supreme important. My worship, my church is is supreme important. I'm going to look at a candidate who respects my God, who respects my church. I can't get all of that, no way. But as far as I can, I want to see God being honored in my vote. I want to see sanity of all lives, all kinds of lives. All lives are sacred. God is a creator of life. He's a giver of life. He's a taker of life. Blessed be the name of the Lord in Job chapter 1. I want to see lives is being respected. I want to see security and protection. I want to live in a place that is safe. I want to see how they take care of the safety of every individual, of all ethnic groups within our nation that, that is being protected and being valued. I want to see family values being preserved, being protected. That, that the, the, the definition of a marriage, the definition of male and female, the definition of what constitutes a, a marriage, I want to see that it is being upheld uh, by this candidate. I want to see justice for all, not for a certain group, not for a certain people, a certain class, but for everybody. Justice for all is only fair for everybody. I want to see uh, the, the marginalized uh, being uh, taken care of uh, in, in their own ways. I want to see the economy is also being played out. I, I, I just look at these important issues and I decide who would be the best person to carry forward. He may be strong in one or two issues. He may be weak in one or two issues. But basically, I seek the Lord. I pray and I ask God to give me the wisdom to know how to cast that vote. But you must vote. But brothers and sisters, today I want to call you to respect each other. How to vote, to vote for a certain individual, um, you, you can find it in the Bible. But you can only find it in the Bible to, to talk about what Henley talks about last week, that the government is there to uphold justice, uh, to, to preserve the, the goodness and, and to punish the, the wicked and, and to preserve that way. But there's a very broad, very broad definition. How do we do that? We need wisdom. And individually, you need to make those choices. So I want to call upon the church, please do not label another person as unchristian when they vote for a candidate that is not of your choice. You can vote your candidate, but when, when you know that the other person may vote for another party, for, for another individual, don't, don't say that it is unchristian. Don't be so harsh. Don't be so harsh. We need to learn how to respect each other. Some churches choose to, to defy the governor's guideline in terms of places of worship. Uh, you know, they'd rather go indoor, but we choose to be outdoor. So I respect the way that you go in. I say, wow, you are really courageous. You know, I wouldn't do that myself. Please respect me as well. This is my choice. This is my church position. This is my pastoral team's position. You know, some will look at that as purely religious liberty issue and fight that nail and tooth all the way. But to us, 
yeah, if you, if you breach on the religious liberty issue, we will fight too. But we don't see that during this time. We see it more as a public health issue, and that's our position. I'll respect your position. You need to respect my position. As it gets closer to the election, some people begin to use the Sunday sermon uh, to preach about politics and to champion for a certain candidate or a certain party. Okay, I respect you to do that, but we choose not to. We give a general guideline. We give a general sense that you need to vote. You need to seek God. You need to make up your own mind. These are the things important to God. But we will not use that as a way to promote a certain individual or a certain party. That's where we stand together. Because, because there is post-election rebuilding. And many of you don't remember. Because it is so emotion, it's so emotionally charged that all you care about is some person is being uh, uh, elected and, and you say things you will regret. You say things that is way too harsh, way too emotional, way too subjective. That after election, it takes a lot of effort to rebuild. After January 20th, 2021, and whoever is elected will be sworn in as president and begin his policy. Whether he will deliver everything he promised, I don't know. There's no guarantee. But I know that I still belong to a marriage and to a family. I know that I still belong to a church. I know I still belong to this nation and we need to, to, to engage in nation building, in family building, in church building together as a vibrant church. If you say things that you will regret later, if you say things that's way too harsh, if you say things that is so absolute, how do you rebuild after the sworn-in ceremony on January 20th, 2021? Look beyond the election. It happens every four years. We must participate. We must be a part of that. But there is life after election. Think twice before you say something that you'll regret later and learn how to respect each other. Because as pastors, we look at how to be peacemakers. And some people consider us as weak. Some people consider us compromising. Some people consider us taking the middle of the stand, neither here nor there, kind of a thing. Hey, be courageous, be bold. But that's where we stand. We stand to build the church of Jesus Christ under the gospel. Because Paul reminds us in chapter 2, Verse 2 of 1 Corinthians, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And that's where we stand. So vote, pray for the presidential election. As it gets closer, it becomes more intense. It becomes more emotionally charged. Pray for safety. Pray that we will think clearly and think through and vote and submit your vote and be a part of the whole democratic process. But after the election, we must rebuild together. Rebuild your family, rebuild your marriage, rebuild your church for the glory of God. Let's submit ourselves under the gospel of Jesus Christ and be unified in that way. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you knowing how emotional these two weeks will be as we come to November the 3rd. Father, we pray for wisdom. We pray that you will give us a biblical mindset Give us a biblical worldview. Help us to look at a big picture, not just ordinary or not just individual issues. 
teachers to know how to vote, that you will be as close as it can be to your heart. And Lord, teach us to know how to respect each other as we grow together under the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.